All right. Everyone, I'd like to welcome you back to the Dishes Can Wait Bookshelf Edition. Uh, it's me, Spencer, and I'm back again. I'm a little bit loud in my own ears. Um, that takes care of that. Uh, anyways, welcome back to the show. Um, it's been a while. I, Julia and I, actually, not just me, but we moved to Portland, Oregon. And I've become even more of a stereotype. Uh, because I'm still a white guy with a beard and glasses who talks about books on a podcast, but now I'm doing it in Portland. So I'm, I'm embracing the stereotype and I'm working with it. Um, a little bit about the noise. I'm in a new apartment. It might be a little bit more echoey. I'm not sure. But one thing that you'll notice is that there are lots of, of road noises. Julia and I now live on a busier street and we're on the actual street, whereas our last apartment was like back away from the street with really thick windows, so you couldn't really hear anything of the road, but you might hear horns honking and the bus pulling up and leaving and all that crap, maybe even a, a police car or an ambulance drive by. Hey, urban living. I've read two books since I last checked in with you, and I wanted to talk about everything that I read. That is kind of the point of this show is to get me to engage fully with everything that I'm reading. And so I read The Refugees by Viet Thanh Nguyen. I believe that's how I say his name. I tried to figure it out, and if I'm fucking it up, I'm sorry. Viet Thanh Nguyen. Um, it's called The Refugees. He also wrote The Sympathizer, which I also read. Both of them are very, 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 very good. I enjoy them all, enjoyed them both immensely. And the other one I read was Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. I did look up how to say his name, and it's not spelled how it sounds, so have fun with that. Um, but I read both of those, and I desperately wanted to talk about both of them, but I also want to throw in a disclaimer here and say that I recognize that these books, especially Between the World and Me, are not necessarily for me. They're not talking about my experience in any literal narrative sense. They're not talking about my world. Um, my privilege kind of keeps me away from a lot of the subject matter. And that's one of the, one of the key points, I think, of this episode, is that I don't have very much common ground with anything discussed in these books. Um, one of them, The Refugees, is a, a collection of short stories. The other one is a nonfiction book um, addressed as a, um, treated as a, a letter to his son, his son Samari. Between the World and Me is not written like a normal letter. It's very eloquently, articulately, and poetically written. Um, and so to treat it as anything less than... Uh, to treat it as anything less then we still have a fridge that loves to butt in. We can't avoid that no matter how far away, how, no matter where you move. Um, but to, to treat it as just a letter to his son would be to do it an extreme injustice. Both, like I said, both of these books reference things that I don't necessarily have a right to claim as my own. I can't claim any of the stories in the refugees. I can't claim Tanasi Coates' story in Between the World and Me because I'm a white man 
and these are stories about people of color and their experience is fundamentally different than mine and it's important that anyone everyone who listens to this and anyone who reads these books understands that you can't I think there's a tendency as white people who are so used to our stories being the most common I don't want to say dominant but just so prevalent so ubiquitous white experience is everywhere and has been for the longest time these are different than ours and uh, Nguyen won the Pulitzer Prize Ta-Nehisi quotes quotes Ta-Nehisi Coates won the National Book Award these are mainstream stories now that are not white stories and we have to release our expectation of what a white story is no no we have to release our expectation of what a mainstream story is because white is no longer mainstream that makes a lot of people mad for some reason but it's true and we need to celebrate that we need to celebrate Ta-Nehisi Coates winning the National Book Award for this book and we need to celebrate Viet Thanh Nguyen winning the Pulitzer Prize for um, the sympathizer because finally we are having minority voices becoming the mainstream and uh, that's why I want to talk about these because they're, they're important stories and I wasted a lot of time I didn't waste I used a lot of time to make this point because I think it's very important um, so let's get down to it anytime you're talking about two separate books whether it be in an academic essay or in your little podcast in your kitchen it's difficult to decide where it's difficult to build a cohesive thing out of two very separate things luckily thematically the books line up well um, but it would have been much easier for me to write um, a 10-page literary analysis a 10-page close reading about these two books than to do an hour-long podcast episode about them Um, but I'm gonna try Um, I used about 12 pages in my little notebook that I prepare all my episodes in just kind of writing seeing how I felt what I thought and what I kept coming back to were themes of dispossession Uh, in both books the idea of something being taken is incredibly important Uh, in the refugees most of the time people have had things taken from them from like various people have taken things have dispossessed the characters whether it's the communists in vietnam american soldiers in vietnam um, just any group of people has somehow dispossessed another group and in tanahasi coates's book there never really was any possession there's been a a systemic plunder he uses plunder a lot to connote the idea that things have been stolen uh, when you normally you think of the word plunder it's always paired with the word pillage and we kind of have a jaunty piratey image that comes up with plunder but he takes that word which in and of itself is a very harsh word it's a very the the what's the word i want the connotation of the sounds 
phonetically, it, it's not a fun-sounding word. It sounds dirty. It sounds harmful. That guy, guy on the motorcycle is really cool. Speaking of sounding dirty and harmful. Um, yeah, so plunder and, and plunder fits into the idea of dispossession. And so I'm going to talk about various ways that dispossession factors into both of these books. That was like the biggest thing that I could come up with. There's so many other so many other angles I could have taken and it makes me sad that I couldn't explore all of them but you know this is only an hour long and I'm already uh, close to 10 minutes in so we got to do what you got to do um the thesis I did come up with one but it's not it's not perfect because this isn't a written essay and I don't have I don't have time to properly explore as I would want to um, I have to read more books. I can't just keep spending three, four hours in coffee shops writing about these two. <laughs> but I could, but I'm not going to. Maybe maybe if I start getting paid to do this, I would. Um, so the thesis that I wrote, both works use naming and the physical body to explore ownership and identity, arguing that the conscious self is innately and indestructibly connected to spoken and physical manifestations of that self dispossession factors into this because in both books systems are in place to dispossess the manifestations of that self the words and the bodies of the people and especially also their material possessions so there are there are things in place that dispossess that ownership that take away from what makes a person a person and so I'm going to talk about that. There's a movement in both books from a dispossession of something to the ownership of something similar but different in a way. And so I noticed that there's a dispossession of materials, of body, of consciousness, and therefore of self and identity. And then the stories move toward ownership of the body, consciousness, and self and identity. And materials kind of fall by the wayside. Materials are as I think a general kind of refutation of American culture, the materials are lost. It's, it's the reclamation of things is not as important as the reclamation of self. And I think that it's not even a reclaiming, it's a recreation. So they don't just reclaim who they are, they recreate who they are. So I want to explore materials first, and I, I thought about going through story by story and then lining coats up with Nguyen, but that seemed, one, like a lot of work, <laughs> um, and two, one of them was going to be privileged over the other. I didn't want to simply use coats to back up Nguyen, and I didn't want to simply use Nguyen to back up coats. I want to treat them both as the individual works that they are and find the commonality between them. Um, I don't want to privilege one or the other because both of them are important on their own. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start with refugees. This is the first quote that I'm going to pull. First quotes I'm going to pull are from the refugees just because it was easier for my brain to organize them in that way. So this is from um, a story called Black-Eyed Women in the Refugees. And it's on page seven of my copy of the book. 
it would take way too long for me to go through and explain the context of all of these quotes. So I'll try to explain the context of the quotes as much as I can, but contextualizing every word is going to be tough. <laughs> so keep in mind that we're talking about dispossession. So here we go from page seven. My American adolescence was filled with tales of woe like this, all of them proof of what my mother said, that we did not belong here. In a country where possessions counted for everything, we had no belongings except our stories. Now this fits into quite a few different things, but the reason I bring it up for dispossession of materials is because when they, the characters in this book had to flee from Vietnam during the Vietnam War, and they left with nothing except barely some clothes on their back, and they got on a boat, and they ended up in America. And from there, they had to do whatever they could. And so from where then can they create a self in in america where acquisition of money of homes of cars of things where that communicates a status and a, a an identity to people where can someone who doesn't have things create an identity there's no there's no opening there for them to fit themselves into and so what they do have is their stories. They have their memories. And I talked about naming in the thesis and that's a major theme, not just the not just like calling something by a name, but by speaking it, by using words and and proclaiming something, you can have ownership. And when you have ownership, you have identity. So they can claim ownership of these stories and therefore find a, a place for an identity to stand um, in, in those stories. And so there were no belongings except the stories. They had to use the stories in order to create an identity. Um, so that right there, there's a dispossession of materials, a movement toward ownership of self. Um, and that's kind of the arc for most of um, for most of these books these books these stories is dispossession of one thing leads to ownership of maybe that thing but in a different way uh, next quote is from page 97 we're talking about dispossession of materials and in this story there's a man who's not Vietnamese he's Mexican but he is still uh, a refugee of sorts um, and one of the things that this book presents is refugees of different kinds there's literal refugees of war and then there's refugees of the different sorts of conflicts that we encounter as people and so this guy arthur ariano is a refugee of of what exactly <laughs> that's a good question i didn't have that one ready um but um some sort of internal ruin has brought him to uh to be a refugee of who he is uh, we'll just stick with that for right now and the story ends in this way. Arthur turned. Norma stood in the, at the back door in a frayed bathrobe, her feet bare. I can explain, Arthur said, extending his arms hopefully. But when Norma folded her own arms over her chest and raised an eyebrow, he saw himself as she saw him then, offering nothing but empty hands. And so to end this story of dispossession, where that's a major theme, to end it on emptiness 
suggests that the materials are representative of something more. He, he can't really offer her anything. He can't offer her anything beyond his empty hands, and even in his empty hands, he doesn't have something immaterial that is worth anything. He hasn't shown himself to have an identity or a self or anything within him worth giving. All he can show her is that he has nothing. And I think the reason that it ends on that point is because that's an important realization for the character. Uh, we can assume from there that maybe he he would he can use that as a point of apology, as a point of uh, reconciliation, and can move toward ownership of an identity that he can offer to his wife, uh, of something um, immaterial and powerful that he can use to um, to repair the relationship that they have. Uh, but he's been he has been dispossessed of not only things but in the loss of those things he has lost who he is and so at the end of the story we see him have an opportunity to reclaim who he is so we'll move on to 131 we're still in the refugees so this is a this quote has a double meaning so the, the, the quote goes, But you could always go home, Claire said. There was always a place for you somewhere. But there's never been a place for me. She isn't talking about a, a literal dispossession of, of physical home. But as in the last one, the physical represents the immaterial. So when, when Claire says that there's no place for her, she's using words that allow us to picture a literal place and the lack thereof and so in her not necessary i don't know if it's because she didn't fit in for whatever reason in her not feeling like her home was her home she has been dispossessed of a home and so in the story she's traveled to vietnam to teach children um i think english english and math and she's searching for a home there a physical home there and also um, the other meaning of home, a place where she can f she can root a self. Uh, she cannot own an identity in the, the physical place where her father and her mother live. She has to create a self elsewhere. And so that's what a lot of the refugees have to do. The place where they, the physical place where they had a self, where they had a sense of who they are has been taken from them. And they have to recreate that self somewhere else. And uh, Claire, in this story, has to do a similar thing. We'll skip back to page 57. Okay, so in this quote, uh, a business owner, a mother and father who are business owners, they, they fear material dispossession. They're putting in new floors outside. If, if you could hear that. Right, I'm just going to keep going. So the quote reads like this. It's a little bit longer, but... Um, their relatives' experiences and their own had taught them... No. I don't know how well you can hear that. It's very intrusive on my, um, on my thought process. 
Their relatives' experiences and their own had taught my parents to believe that no country was immune to disaster, and so they secreted another percentage of the profits at home, just in case some horrendous calamity wiped out the American banking system. My mother wrapped blocks of $100 bills in plastic and taped them underneath the lid of the toilet tank, buried dog-tag-sized ounces of gold in the rice, and stashed her jade bracelets, 24-karat gold necklaces, and diamond rings in a portable fireproof safe hidden in the crawl space underneath the house. To distract thieves, she devised decoys, placed a large glass vase heavy with coins high on a bookshelf by the front door, and a pair of gold bracelets on top of her dresser. So that quote punctuated by uh, people working on the stairs in the hallway um, is evidence of the fear of dispossession. <laughs> it's gonna f fucking piss me off. It's evidence... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to try to get through this, even though they're hammering. Do my best. Um, so the fear of dispossession is bone deep for these people, because they recognize the fragility of their position already. Um... gotta wait this one out. At least the fridge turned off. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, they recognize the fragility of their position. They understand that being dispossessed of their money leaves them really with nothing but their stories. Being dispossessed of what they earn in their store leaves them floating adrift they don't have a sense of who they are because they have been taken from what they know and who they are and placed in a in a, an environment that is foreign and so they are business owners they own a business that is an identity that they can have but they have to maintain that business they have to have money and uh things in place that will help them. I apologize for that that point. That was I was a little bit distracted, and I might still be yet. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna crack open coats to page twenty-two, between the world and me. Throughout between the world and me, there's the word plunder, and so anytime you see the word plunder as you're reading, you you have to understand, you have to. You have to dispossess yourself of your attachments to it and understand it in the sense of a visceral, bone-deep um, theft. It, it's not just um, pillaging and plundering like Captain Jack Sparrow. It's, it's a destructive theft. It's there so often because you need to, you need to detach any like storybook thing because that was hard for me i kept hearing it in the pillage and plunder aspect and not the the physical destruction that that plunder causes so in this section of the book uh coates is talking about being young in baltimore and living under the the rule of the 
the kids that owned the streets, in quotes. Of course, we chose nothing, and I have never believed the brothers who claim to run, much less own, the city. We did not design the streets. We do not fund them. We do not preserve them. But I was there, nevertheless, charged like all the others with the protection of my body. Coates is getting at a generational dispossession. Uh, he's not talking about being having the streets taken from him by the... He doesn't identify them as gang members, so I'm not going to do that. But it's clear that they are members of some sort of street gang by others. He's not saying that the other black people that are stuck in these neighborhoods have stolen the streets from him or from anyone. The streets are owned by this establishment that has designed it, designed a system that does not allow uh, the black people in, this, in these neighborhoods to possess the streets. Like he says, they don't participate in any of the, the normal tasks of ownership. Uh, there's no designing, there's no funding, there's no pres preservation. All of that occurs elsewhere. It occurs apart from them. They have never had an opportunity to own the streets. And so that was one of the first examples. There's a physical dispossession that has always happened. And Coates talks about it throughout the book that there's been a historical theft that current and future generations are victims of because there has been no repayment. There has been nothing done to rectify the fact that there's, I'm not, I'm not articulate enough, nor knowledgeable, nor, you know, I'm not qualified to fill in Coates's blanks. Um, I'm referring to the uh, historical institutional crimes against black people that the American government has performed. Um, namely, slavery, Jim Crow after that, um, 40 acres and a mule was not was not the best way to set someone up for success after slavery. Uh, sharecropping, and I'm just saying buzzwords, but it takes, a, it takes an understanding of American history to know the extent of the dispossession that Coates is talking about. This is just a small tip of the iceberg reference to the generational dispossession of black people in America. And it's important to identify that. Um, I'm talking about dispossession of materials with this quote because how can someone feel like this nation is their home if they are refugees, literally, of, of, uh, of a crime, of, of a terror that happened 250 years ago there's there's no justification after for, there's no justification for the boys that are growing up merely trying to maintain possession of their body so that that's why that's why i brought this up in the in the discussion about dispossession of materials is because this is where it starts with your things because that's what we're taught to value are our things um I'm sitting here in my apartment full of things that I have acquired uh, to, to be dispossessed of the apartment, let alone the things, would be devastating. But that's what these people in uh, Between the World and Me and the refugees have to navigate, is that dispossession.
So that's why, I, that's why I wanted to bring it up first. Next is dispossession of the body, which of course is death. If you think it sounds like they're right outside my door, it's because they are. Our apartment is situated right next to the stairs. And if, as you can imagine, it it kind of sucks. I was hoping to get this done before they got in to the top part because they were at the bottom part and I could kind of hear it, but it wasn't a big deal. Oh, my ne that one was my neck. I'm stressed. All right. Dispossession of the body and the refugees. Page 125. This is more metaphorical, but it, um, I'll read the quote first. See, it says 36 minutes on my thing, but I know I'm not going to be at, you're not going to be at 36 minutes when you hear this. I'm going to have to cut out like 12 minutes of content. Well, I guess it isn't really content. It's just them fucking banging away outside. You know what kind of amuses me as I have to sit here and wait for them to finish working? Is that there are 100% people that would be doing something similar to what I'm doing here. Something that is kind of dependent on a lack of uh, interruption. And they would go outside of their apartment and they would tell them to be quiet. And that blows my mind. That people could be that selfish. Like they're just out there having a party. Just uh, doing manual labor for fun. Hey, could you guys keep it down with your fucking fun out here? Alright? Some of us have shit to do. Like, <laughs> I know for a fact someone has done that this week. In this city. I'm not sure if they still have more to do. This is from page 125 of The Refugees. Michiko was the one who wanted to see Vietnam, hearing from relatives who had toured there that it reminded them of Japan's bucolic past before General MacArthur wielded the post-war hand of reconstruction to daub Western makeup on Japanese features. So that, that outright does not sound like it's something that's talking about dispossession of the body. This is more emblematic of a deeper dispossession uh, using the body as a very clear representation of that. To alter the appearance is to alter the self. I talked about skin a lot uh, when I was talking about Americana. And that is your perception, the per people's perception of you and the skin that you present to them is representative of who you are. Uh, if, if, you, if you don't want to if you feel like yourself isn't represented in your skin, that's fine. That's your feeling, but it doesn't change the fact that people are going to identify you with your appearance. Th those are inseparable. I talked about that in my thesis. That your your self is innately connected to your physical self. So to daub Western makeup on Jap um, <clears throat> on Japanese features is to alter the identity of the thing that has been altered.
wait, <laughs> no shit. It, it's to alter the identity of the thing that has been changed. It's the same fucking sentence. You know what I'm saying. By changing the outward appearance of Japan, you have changed the deeper Japan. You have dispossessed Japanese people of what had previously made them Japanese people. Now they have to reconfigure who they are because someone else's hand put makeup on them. They have to figure out who they are with this new face that they did not choose. So that's a that's a dispossession of of a, of the body in in a broader, more figurative sense. Page ten also talks about dispossession of the body, and this is talking about ghosts, ghosts, like um, spooky. I I'm actually really fascinated with the idea of ghosts because they represent a consciousness that is no longer there, and there's a I think that's very interesting to explore. Ghosts are disembodied. They have been dispossessed of their body. So here's a quote from one of the characters about ghosts. Ghosts don't live by our rules. Each ghost is different. Good ghosts, bad ghosts, happy ghosts, sad ghosts. Ghosts of people who die when they're old, when they're young, when they're small. You think baby ghosts behave the same way as grandfather ghosts? In a book about people dispossessed, um, to talk about ghosts is very fitting, especially in the first story. We come to understand refugees themselves as being ghosts, as having lost so much as to be disembodied, as these ghosts are. So the ghosts become stand-ins for um, these nameless, almost, uh, these, these amorphous characters who have lost so much that all that they have is their soul. Their stories is another, is another way to represent that all that they have is the their minds because basically a ghost is just a a nebulous consciousness it has no physical self and so all these when these people lose everything they become individuals disembodied dispossessed of everything that makes a human a human ghosts are not human it's just emphasizing that yes um people have lost a lot but they are still individuals. I think that's what this quote is getting at. Dispossession of body does not negate dispossession of self. Or don't does not entail dispossession of self. Alright, we'll skip to page 77. And this one is uh, about Mr. Arthur Ariano again. Your body is a complex organism, Mr. Ariano. The doctor stopped swiveling and leaned forward, his elbows on the leather writing pad of his desk. It can do pretty much whatever it wants. And this quote is ironic in this context because Arthur's liver has failed. He is going to die if he doesn't get a transplant. That's very ironic for a doctor to say, your body can do pretty much whatever it wants. And then simultaneously say that you're going to die. Your body cannot do whatever it wants. I'm struggling mightily with focusing. I have the gain I have the gain turned down as low as I can have it. But I still fear that I'm getting too much of I mean they have a radio, which is a little bit extra, but I mean fuck come on. They're building stairs. 
they can have a goddamn radio if they want it. So yeah, um, on the topic of uh, Arthur's body, <laughs> he's he is going to be dispossessed of his body, um, and there's the idea from a doctor that he has control over that, that his body can do whatever it wants, but that's not the case, and I think that there's a double speak there in how a lot of people of color have, and I'm avoid I want to avoid overgeneralizations, but I want to be realistic. Um, the American dream that Coates talks a lot about in Between the World and Me, the idea that there's a dream and it's attainable for everyone and it's what everyone wants, that that's false. And this is a way of hinting at that falsity or fallacy, whatever is the best, the correct English word there. Your body can do whatever it wants is uh, a way of communicating that your body so loud out there. God damn it. Alright. I'm gonna have to pause. And I'm back. It's literally been an hour. I was about to apologize for taking so long, but it's not gonna be an hour for you. Because, obviously, I wasn't recording that whole time. But we're gonna pick back up with this possession of the body. 86, page 86. Um, this is Arthur. After having... So, I don't know, I, I refuse to listen to it back yet, I don't know how good of a job I did explaining the irony of Arthur's lack of true agency with his body. Anyways, I got interrupted again because my mom decided to call me. Um, and I love her, and I always love when she calls, but I mean, come on. The lack of agency with his body. So that's, that's the true dispossession, is that refugees, people of color, people who live outside of what Coates labels the dream, they live without true agency for their body. And the, the assumption is that they do have agency. The reality is that they don't. So they're told that their body can do anything. Meanwhile, they're facing dispossession of the body. They're facing death. All right, that's what I wanted to say. Back to page 86. Arthur's considering uh, talk, thinking about his brother and his relationship with his brother. Would Martine have given Arthur a spare part of himself, a kidney, say, or bone marrow? Would Arthur have done the same for Martine? The questions bothered Arthur all day. The question is, would Martine give Arthur a spare part of himself? Or would Arthur do the same for his brother? Would they sacrifice a portion of themselves, their identities, for someone else? Oftentimes, when you're facing disembodiment, um, both the literal and the, and the um, figurative sense, you might have to sacrifice something of who you are in order to stay alive. And you might have to do that for the sake of other people as well. So that's what this uh, image is getting at, is um, sacrificing something of who you are in order for someone else to survive, or in order for yourself, your own like physical body to survive. Page 110. It's going to be a different story now. This is uh, a quote referencing the fear of dispossession as well as a fear, a fear of dispossession of body as representative of a fear of deeper. Well, I guess there really isn't anything deeper than the dispossession of your body, but your, the dispossession of your body representing the theft of your identity. So, uh, Mrs. Khan is uh, a character in this story. She she refuses to go on a cruise. 
because open, span open expanses of water prompted fears of drowning, a phobia so strong that she no longer took baths, and even when showering kept her back to the spray. So this is another thing like the business owners fearing the dispossession of their, their money. Mrs. Khan fears the dispossession of her body because that is the truest manifestation of herself. Um, and the fear becomes so deep as to become irrational because she has nothing really to anchor onto except for her body. And so she has to preserve it. So now we'll pick up coats and we'll look at dispossession of the body. Now this was one of the hardest things. It was very difficult to choose uh, quotes about this because um, Between the World and Me is very, very heavy with images of the body and of its um, plunder. That's the main, the main motif in the book is the black body and its fragility in American society. We'll look at pages 64, 65. There are people whom we do not fully know, and yet they live in a warm place within us. And when they are plundered, when they lose their bodies and the dark energy disperses, that place becomes a wound. So this is, this is a pretty layered uh, idea. Um, first you have the, the literal body that is lost, the life that is lost. But more than that, the, the feeling of that loss, the feeling of that plunder is visceral. And by visceral, I mean relating to your physical viscera. You feel it like a wound on your own body. And the interconnectedness of bodies in this quote suggests the interconnectedness of relationship and of identity and of love that happens between people. One person's disembodiment leads you closer to your own disembodiment. It makes the presence of death more apparent to you. And it hurts you not only because it, it makes the reality of your own body's fragility more apparent, but it hurts you also because you care about that person. That person is part of your body, is part of yourself. Uh, Coates links the, the body and the self explicitly. I have the quote, I'll probably read it at some point, I don't know off the top of my head, but the body is the self. And so there is no other you than the physical body that you have. And so for, for him to layer that physical body with someone else's is to emphasize the interconnectedness of people. We'll jump back to page 12. Coates poses the, the question of the whole book here on page 12, and it's a pretty important um, thematically quote, so I'll, I'll read it through its entirety. Specifically, how do I live free in this black body? It is a profound question because America understands itself as God's handiwork, but the black body is the clearest evidence that America is the work of men. I have asked the question through my reading and writings, through the music of my youth, through arguments with your grandfather, with your mother, your Aunt Janai, your Uncle Ben. I have searched for answers in nationalist myth in classrooms, out on the streets, and on other continents. The question is unanswerable, which is not to say futile. The greatest reward of this constant interrogation of confrontation with the brutality of my country is that it has freed me from ghosts and girded me against the sheer terror of disembodiment. So here is the thesis of Between the World and Me. It is the search that has protected him from ghosts, from, from being haunted by the disembodied, and from the terror of his own disembodiment is the search for understanding. 
the search for his place amid a world that seems to want to destroy him and uh, seems to want to dispossess him of his body. He invades throughout this book for his son to pick up that search. I was going to talk about naming, but he names his son Samari as a representation of the struggle that he's talking about here, the struggle for knowledge and understanding in the face of this unanswerable question. Because only through struggling can he, only through seeking to understand, can he remain alive, really. Can he avoid that disembodiment that would come with complacency that would lead to a lack of safety or otherwise. So we'll go to page 37. I'm kind of, it was, it was very hard to pick quotes, so I tried to do my best to pick the best ones, but you really have to read the whole book to get the, the full scope of how thoroughly Coates explores the idea of the body and as the self. The missing thing was related to the plunder of our bodies. The fact that any claim to ourselves, to the hands that secured us, the spine that braced us, and the head that directed us was contestable. As children, as a child, Coates and the people he knew did not feel as if their physical body was their own. Any claim to ourselves, he writes, was contestable. If he wanted to say, these hands are mine, well, it's, it's entirely easy for the institutions that, were, that are in place to dispossess you of those hands, to dispossess you of that spine, of that brain, of that mind, of that body that is representative of who you are. We can take it, is, is what Coates is saying the communication to him has been. In all of his interactions with other people on the street, with police forces, with the entire world, it was that he has never been a true possessor of himself. And that goes back to the what I talked about before, the generational dispossession. This is another example of that generational dispossession. They're, they never owned the streets and they never owned themselves. And so who are they? And that's the struggle that I was just talking about is trying to answer how can I create a self when this body isn't mine, when these materials aren't mine, when nothing apparently is here that's mine and uh, we, we will connect the answer to that question the struggle is the answer to that question we'll connect that with uh, the refugees shortly so stay tuned alas i can't read my own handwriting so we're going to miss one quote but i'll go to page 76 we have the last one about the body this is describing the fear that uh, coates feels when he's pulled over by police now this is has been a this has been a serious issue in our culture lately in how police treat people of color, particularly black people, particularly black men. I come from a position where it's easy for me to put up my own wall of interpretation against the story that Coates is telling. And it's easy for me to read it and say, yeah, but in my head and I could fill in whatever I want with the yeah but in some way to discredit what he's saying to find some sort of statistic to prove that he his feelings are unfounded I, I could do all of that because of my position and the way that I was raised and I could justify it in my head and move on but I think 
it takes a level of understanding and empathy and it takes a level of honesty with yourself to put your own background, your own experiences, to put all of that aside and to listen to what someone has to say. And any, especially, I'm talking to white people here, any white people that that listen, that read this, and listen to this podcast, but read this book, have to do that. You have to, you have to acknowledge where you're coming from, remove it for a moment, and read honestly what this person is saying, and see if you can understand it. And then you can, you know, go from there, but you have to read it first. You have to listen to it first, and then you can talk about it. You have to listen. First and foremost, you have to listen. And so I'm, I li- I'm listening. I don't know if that communicated well. I kind of just went off, um, went off plan, but it popped up in my head, so I said it. These officers had my body, could do with that body whatever they pleased, and should I live to explain what they had done with it, this complaint would mean nothing. So in that moment, he has been dispossessed. He has been disembodied. Uh, His body has been stolen from him. His agency has been stolen from him. And the reason that I bring up listening first is because it's easy for white people to say, just listen to the police. Just It's easy for white people to write some something like this off, and they do it all the time because it's convenient. You don't have to think about it very hard. But the reality of the situation is that in that moment, because of the culture that we have created and that we continue to perpetuate, a man felt like his body was not his own more so than usual because in the book he talks about how he constantly feels like he's been dispossessed of his body but in this moment his entire self his entire identity is in the hands of the police and whether you agree with him or not you have to understand that that is what he felt and you you are not allowed to say that that's not what he felt moving from there looking at it in a more literary standpoint Um, this just further communicates the idea that there's been that dispossession of body and therefore dispossession of self. And this is further calling attention to something that he has been struggling to understand his whole life. And then I brought up dispossession of consciousness. I didn't find a lot of that in Coates, but I did see it in the refugees. And I think that it's still important to talk about as far as um, disembodiment is concerned. It was a trivial secret, but one I would remember as vividly as my feeling that while some people are haunted by the dead, others are haunted by the living. This idea of haunting, this idea of a consciousness being hostage, it it blurs the line between what we take as alive and what we take as dead. If we can be haunted by something, that is dead that makes sense ghosts and disembodied things and that fits in with what we're talking about with the dispossession of body but to be haunted by the living is to to be haunted by the living would be to recognize that there is a lost 
there's a ghost for someone who's alive. In order for there to be a ghost, someone had to die. That, that's the literal definition of ghost. If, if you're looking back on a person and you're haunted by who they used to be versus who they are now, then there is, there is a death that has happened. There's been a death and a recreation of self that is not what you want. Um, so that loss of identity, uh, of consciousness is real. And a ghost is disembodied consciousness. So to be haunted by consciousness of someone who is alive is to mourn the loss of who they used to be, is to mourn that dispossession. Again, this is something that I would explain a lot I would explore a lot more in writing, but in speaking, that's the best that I could do right now. I'm kind of still pretty limited by time, so I want to keep going, but um, I don't know if I'm making the point clear enough, but that's that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to the, uh, it would be much easier to spell out in writing, but you know, I got to deal with the medium. And uh, going on again uh, with consciousness, this is a man who is suffering from dementia. And he's on page on page 117, he says, I've been trying to read this sentence for five minutes, the professor said, staring at the page. When he looked up, she saw tears in his eyes. I'm losing my mind, aren't I? So here, in this quote, we see a man actively watching himself lose his consciousness. His mind is still there, his brain still works, his body still works, he's not dying, but the, the functions, the awareness that is consciousness is slipping away. He's being dispossessed of it. And so in the face of that, he has to figure out, he has to come to grips with the fact that he's, by result, losing his identity as well. There might be, a, I might be conflating or um, I might be trying to separate consciousness and identity too much, but there is I, there is a difference between consciousness and identity. Consciousness is being aware of an identity. Um, I probably should have made that point a little clearer before I started talking about this. A lot of people um, a lot of people conflate consciousness with identity. It's not necessarily so. To be conscious is to be aware that you are an entity. To to understand yourself as uh, as an individual. And so to be losing your consciousness, you can no longer understand yourself as an individual. You are losing the ability to see who you are. And um, that's terrifying, especially for this character, the professor. All right, moving on. Now, this is where, where all of these things that I've been talking about, loss of material, loss of body, loss of consciousness, all of this affects loss of self and identity. Um, and so I want to talk about that. Finally, as we're talking about loss, first one's on page 20. This is two quotes, two quotes that, um, bring, that reference the same idea of, uh, of a lost self. The ghost of the boat watching us with those eyes that never closed, even the ghost of the girl I once was, the only ghosts my mother feared. And then further down on the page, they look shy uncomfortable, forlorn, surrounded by friends and reporters who cannot see the two ghosts also present at this melancholic meeting, the smudged shadows of their former selves. 
So in both of this, both of both of these, there is, there are people who are no longer people, who are gone, um, in one sense or another. They no longer exist, and the new people that are there in their place uh, have different identities, and their former selves are ghosts in the past. This calls back to when I was talking about consciousness. They can look back with their consciousness and see two separate identity and see a separate identity the girl that she used to be the smudged shadows of their former selves they have to mourn the loss of those identities and exist within the one that they have now it's tragic to have to have lost yourself and to understand that the self that you had is lost and this one is back to the story with the man who has dementia he's calling his wife by the, the wrong name. He says, you always insisted we dance when you heard this song, Yen. He calls her Yen. Oh, Mrs. Khan took a slow sip from her glass of water, hiding her surprise at being called by someone else's name. When did we ever dance? This quote evidences the extent to which Nguyen explored the idea of loss and, and loss of self and loss of identity. In the first quote, we have people who have changed over time and have become someone else over time. But in this one, the question that's being asked by the situation is, who are you if the person that you have married can no longer understand you as the person that he married? Who are you when that identity has been lost and you are now someone else, a name that you don't recognize? And he perceives you to be that person, even though nothing about you has changed. You have effectively lost your identity by no fault of your own, but because someone else is losing their ability to think properly, you know? So there's a, there's a great loss there. There's a, there's a great tragedy in forfeiting that, that self to someone else. He asks, um, later she asked him, who am I? What's my name? And he squinted at her and said, Yen, of course. That was on page 109. I don't, I don't, know, if, I don't know if I'm explaining it right. There's a, so not only is it, so that, that's the question that's being, that, that follows this when we're looking at the theft of identity. How is she going to re- create herself in order to uh, repossess and to take ownership of who she is. In this, uh, she, she proclaims her name to him. She says, my name is Sa. Call me by my name, Sa. And then later, as, as later at, towards the end of the book on like the last, the last page, she calls herself Yen uh, because he calls her Yen and she, as an act of love, accepts the false identity knowing that she has already spoken she has already declared herself and taken ownership of herself she accepts the false identity for the sake of her husband as he's you know he's late in life as an act of love she relinquishes her identity for this other identity that will help him uh, and that's a very complex and painful experience for Sa to Mrs. Khan, Sa to go through, 
to to say who you are and then to have to swallow that identity and put on another one it's, it's hard moving on go to page 193 she's this this one is a character thinking about tourists in vietnam in a few days or a week or two weeks they would leave their most vivid memory about this day being the funny experience of crawling on their knees through a tunnel with a vague memory of the passionate little tour guide and his somewhat quirky english we're all this we're all the same to them fong understood with a mix of anger and shame small charming and forgettable this one deals with perception again that's a main um, a major major point is not only the self that you cultivate and present the way that that self is perceived. For Mrs. Khan, she had no control over her husband's loss of recognition for her, or uh, I guess um, mistaking recognition of her. She had no control over that loss of identity. And here, Fuang, I think that's how you say her name, I feel so white. Um, she has no control over how tourists perceive her and understand her. And she's this this powerless position to be interpreted by someone else to have someone else ascribe an identity to you and for you to be powerless against that the characters have to figure out who they are in the midst of that um, that's that's the movement of these stories is understanding the perception or the the expression the perception of that expression and then how you respond to that perception um, and the self that you create in spite of that perception. Page 203. This is still the story of Fuang. A week later, their father would develop the photograph, but it would take Fuang a moment to examine the laminated picture before she remembered what was absent underneath the clear plastic. Vivian was visible in the doorway, eyes moist and makeup smudged, but by an accident of timing or composition, Fuang herself could not be seen. So this is just another more evidence of not not literally not being seen and there's no dispossession of her body there's dispossession of an image of her body of a representation of her body there is no there is no identity there's no self to be seen and so when the perception camera is perceiving when the perception has no identity in it, you have to you have to find a way to create something. You have to do it yourself. And so, by the end of this story, that is what Fong does. She decides she's going to move to America, and, and in that arc is her self creation and ownership of that identity. Switching back to Between the World and Me, we'll be on page nineteen. Remember, we're talking about dispossession here. I'm just getting a little bit ahead by talking about taking ownership. See, I can't even read my own. Let's see if it's 79. Can't even read my own handwriting. Abomination. Well, this is the quote. I believed and still do that our bodies are ourselves, that my soul is the voltage conducted through neurons and nerves, and that my spirit is my flesh. I don't know why I wrote that there, but I don't want to forget about reading it. Body is self. Body is identity. Hold on to it. All right, next quote is on 81. I'm just going to skip whatever I had there. I should have written better. One of Coates' friends, when he was growing up, and he went to Howard University, a person he met there, his name was Prince Jones. Prince Jones was murdered by a police officer. 
And so this is Coates talking about how he processed that death. And the plunder was not just of Prince alone. Think of all the love poured into him. Think of the tuitions for Montessori and music lessons. Think of the gasoline expended, the treads worn, carting him to football games, basketball tournaments, and Little League. Think of the time spent regulating sleepovers. Think of the surprise birthday parties, the daycare, and the reference checks on babysitters. Think of the world book and child craft. Think of checks written for family photos. Think of credit cards charged for vacations. Think of soccer balls, science kits, chemistry sets, racetracks, and model trains. Think of all the embraces, all the private jokes, customs, greetings, names, dreams, all the shared knowledge and capacity of a black family injected into that vessel of flesh and bone. And think of how that vessel was taken, shattered on the concrete, and all its holy contents, all that had gone into him, sent flowing back to the earth. Think of how Prince's daughter was now drafted into these solemn ranks and deprived of her birthright, that vessel which was <clears throat> which was her father, which brimmed with 25 years of love and was the investment of her grandparents and was to be her legacy. So there's a very strong, very strong argument there that our identities are inextricably, inextricably, yeah, inextricably, sorry, inextricably linked to everything on our timeline that extends backwards. That when our bodies are plundered, when our, when our life is taken, that so much more is lost than, than a body, than blood in veins, than electricity through neurons. That, that's what Between the World and Me argues over and over again, is that plundering a body is plundering an entire person. And so Coates tries to paint the picture of an entire person for us to allow us to see all that is taken when a life is taken. What, what is an identity? It is not just a body. A body is a representation of the identity. Your identity is everything that you have done and all the love that has been given to you and that you have given to the world and can still give to the world. That is who you are. And I think this quote, more than probably any other really explains what a self is what an identity is and what was lost when prince jones was killed page six and seven last one for identity is on page 60. i don't want to read this quote because of the the language within it um, i don't feel comfortable saying the words they're they're hate words the words of hate that um, ascribe an identity to people that is extremely harmful and is meant to degrade. And um, while I'm not speaking them towards anyone and I'm reading them in the context of the book, I don't think that giving them the benefit of my voice is going to add or change anything in this situation. So I'm not going to say them. All I'm going to say, I'm, I'm just going to comment on the fact that Coates here talks about how hate gives identity. That's what a sentence in this quote. The reality of this situation in many parts of our country is that people want to feel included. They want to feel like they matter. And a lot of that is rooted in identity and rooted in who you are. We have a cultural norm that suggests that the best thing is to be a man and to be white and to be well off and live in a, a suburban town with uh, 
three kids and a dog. That is the cliche American dream. And falling short of that would be to be anything but the man in control of that life. And so people notice themselves to be outside of that life, to really never be able to achieve that life. And in order to feel powerful and to feel important, they use hate to put down others who will also not be a part of that dream. Basically, people on any side, any spot on the gender and sexuality spectrum that isn't male and straight. There's all sort, and any person of color that isn't white. You know, the, everyone finds ways to hate each other as a way to make their own lack of the dream tolerable. To make themselves feel better because they know that they can't be that good, but they can be better than someone else. Hate is not an identity that, the fact that using the word hate gives identity, hate is the result of an identity that has been um, stolen. Hate gives identity in a place where identity has already been taken, where you're not sure who you are because you're not sure where you fit in this lifestyle that isn't designed for you. So there's you have an amorphous sense of who you are, and so you can find an identity in hating what you are not. At least we're not them. At least we're us, and they're them, and it creates more separation. And it all starts because of the cultural norm that we're trying to get rid of, which says that we need to be this when we cannot. And I think that's a good place to end this section. We'll move on to ownership which I didn't pick as many quotes for because I knew that this was going to be a long episode dealing with two books. Um, So I didn't pick nearly as many quotes to end it. I just want to talk about, before I get into it, that this is all going to be representative of the reality that when you have been dispossessed of these things that make you who you are, you have to figure out who it is that you are. And in The Refugees, and in between the world and me people go about it different ways people find self-creation in different things so i would i would suggest reading the books because i'm not going to be able to give you a complete picture and um, by reading maybe you can help yourself create who you are first thing about ownership i'm going to talk about ownership of the body we're going to go to page 129 page 130 of the refugees and this is a perverted ownership Um, both in um, kind of the sexual sense, Uh, you'll see when I read the quote, but um, in the mutated, the, the wrong sense of ownership. As an airman, William knew that if his father could live life all over again, Carver wouldn't hesitate to crawl once more through the narrow breach in the paunch of the B-52's fuselage, the entry never failing to make him quiver with anticipation. So that is an image laden with sexual language meant to meant to be sexual it's meant to make you think of so- something you know i don't have to spell it out for you we're all adults here in that sexuality is a sense of ownership it, it in that is a sense of self understanding the reason that the reason that i think it's it's a little bit of a perverted sense of ownership is because He's finding himself, he thinks that he's no more himself than when he is 
in a bomber plane which is designed to dispossess people of materials body consciousness and identity in one explosion you know the connotation of the bomber is one thing but the connotation that he is himself most when he is he he has found the wrong sense of power in order to fulfill himself so this is self-ownership but it is the wrong sense of self-ownership i'm going to talk more about this character carver at the very end that's that's the wrong sense of self-ownership next we'll go to page 161 so on this quote this is a man's father saying uh you've gained weight you haven't combed your hair he plucked at my pants and you haven't ironed your clothing a man must always iron his clothing and then 10 pages later the scar was a vivid bolt of red lightning in my memory angled between his sternum and his heart but in the dim light of his bedroom it was only a pink zipper holding the rumpled loose skin of his chest together so this quote talks about ownership of the body in a in a in a more external way dealing very heavily with what i talked about earlier with perception you must always iron your clothes you must present the best person that you can to the world because the world is going to judge you based on that perception. The father who was speaking those words has loose wrinkly skin on his chest that he covers with well-ironed clothes. So the perception is different from the reality. The ownership comes from the, the presentation of the identity that you want people to see. So by being overweight, by being messy, uh, by being... Uh, disheveled you're communicating a self that you may not want people to see but by presenting you know something different you're owning a self that you're proud of and we'll go to coats for the last two quotes dealing with ownership of the body page 69 what we must never do is willingly hand over our own bodies or the bodies of our friends that was the wisdom. We knew we did not lay down the direction of the street, but despite that, we could and must fashion the way of our walk. And that is the deeper meaning of your name, that the struggle in and of itself has meaning. So while the, the literal meaning of this quote, pretty clear, um, we didn't make the street, we didn't design it, we didn't tell it where to go. We can't control the path that we're on but we can control how we walk that path. We can fashion the way of our walk. And I love that image because your path may not be what you want. The, the, the things that you are going through, you are not always in control of. Your body can't do whatever it wants to reference the quote earlier about being dispossessed of your body. This is the solution to that problem. You are dispossessed of your body's agency, but you can fashion the way of your walk in that agency. You, you have the capability to be the person that you want to be, even if you are not necessarily walking the path you want to be on. You didn't fashion the streets. You can fashion yourself into the person that you want to be. You can take ownership of who you are. Page 89. 
And so when I remember pushing you in your stroller to other parts of the city, the West Village for instance, almost instinctively believing that you should see more, I remember feeling ill at ease, like I had borrowed someone else's heirloom, like I was traveling under an assumed name. So in this section, the, the ability to walk down the street feels like someone else's property. The ability to be in a different neighborhood to be in a white neighborhood as a black man feels like you are, or feels like Coates is, stealing. He, he, he says borrowing, but he means stealing. The irony of that, and the reason that Coates later feels ashamed for feeling that, is because he already owns the ability to walk down the street. 20 pages before, he had given his son the commandment to fashion the way of his walk, that it may not be his street, but god damn it it's your walk down the street and here he is feeling guilty for walking down the street so there's there's an irony there and uh and by the end of that quote by the end of that section he takes ownership for his body to be on the street um, but he had to go through that moment of feeling like he was spending someone else's money in a way now we'll talk about ownership of consciousness. We'll go to page 21 of the Refugees. So this is the last paragraph of the first story in the Refugees. It reads, Sometimes this is how stories come to me, through her. Let me tell you a story, she would say, once, twice, or perhaps three times. More often, though, I go hunting for the ghosts, something I can do without ever leaving home. As they haunt our country, so do we haunt theirs. They are pallid creatures, more frightened of us than we are of them. That is why we see these shades so rarely, and that is why we must seek them out. The talismans on my desk, a tattered pair of shorts and a ragged t-shirt, clean and dry and neatly pressed, remind me that my mother was right. Stories are just things we fabricate, nothing more. We search for them in a world besides our own, then leave them here to be found, garments shed by ghosts. So that's a tough one. But I want you to think about it in terms of consciousness, in terms of awareness of life. And the biggest thing that I want to say about it is that in telling stories, you are taking ownership of, you are taking, so, this is a tough one, so <laughs> you can see how tough it is. I, I'm struggling with it. By telling stories, you are exercising your consciousness in order to recognize the identity of others, not only of yourself, but of other people. You are communing with other consciousnesses, ghosts, and in terms of this, and memories, and you're interacting with all of these aspects of who someone is. The, the talismans that she, talk, that, that she talks about are the clothes, clothes that her brother was killed in. There's nothing in a story that is as real as those clothes. She possesses the clothes, the garments shed by ghosts, and she possesses the consciousness to be able to look at those clothes and see her brother's identity. And so she can take ownership of those things and tell the story and declare and name these identities that now exist only as memory. 
So with consciousness, you can, you can reclaim who you are and who other people are by reclaiming your consciousness. Makes sense in my head. I think it makes sense now that I spoke it, but you know, we're dealing with some complex stuff here. Page 134, moving along. And this is uh, Claire, who we heard from earlier, who was saying how she'd never had a place. She was hoping to find a place. And now she says, I am home, Mom. It sounds strange. I don't know how to put it, but I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. I have a Vietnamese soul. I mean, this one's one of the more straightforward quotes. She proclaims that this is the consciousness and the identity that she wants. She created it for herself. She's Her ethnicity is Japanese and African-American. That would be her ethnicity. She's not Vietnamese, which is why her father responds promptly, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But she has a Vietnamese soul. This is where the consciousness that she has created and the identity that she has made for herself, this is where it resides in Vietnam with the children teaching them English. And that is a powerful moment for her to declare that herself. That is what we all seek. And then on page 141, this is the father who fought in the Vietnam War also. That's a layer to this story. I don't, I don't know if it actually matters what I'm talking about. He says, I have a daughter who thinks she's Vietnamese. She responds, I said I have a Vietnamese soul. It's a figure of speech. It's an expression. It means I think I found some place where I can do some good and make up for some of the things you've done. So she is taking ownership not only for her own actions, not only of her own self, but of that of her father, who fought for the Americans in the Vietnamese War, in the, in the Vietnam War, who dropped bombs on Vietnamese people, dispossessed them of their land, of themselves, of their bodies, sent them as refugees to America or to the afterlife, <laughs> and she has to reckon with that. She has to reclaim and process and in her own way reconcile that that represents her taking ownership of everything um, it, it's an expression she says it's, a, it's an expression of that ownership of that identity and now we'll get to Coates page 108 which I think I was on earlier but we are going back so this is a uh, Coates talking to his son again. I would not have you descend into your own dream. I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world. So descending into the dream would be like I talked about before, descending into the idea that you have to fit a certain mold, that you have to become a certain person. And that person, the American dream, and the institutions that perpetuate the American dream want you to be a straight white male. Obviously, a black kid can't be a straight white male. And so to fall into some perversion of the dream would be to allow him, would allow himself to fall asleep. Coates wants him to stay awake, to be conscious, to understand that the struggle against and to understand the institutions of America will help him be a conscious citizen to create a self that to create a self at all 
to preserve the body and the self and to constantly question where, who, what, why, all of those things about who he is, his identity. That is the consciousness that Coates wants for his son. So here he talks about how you can create consciousness. When I was in trouble at school, which was quite often, my mother would make me write about it. The writing had, <clears throat> the writing had to answer a series of questions. Why did I feel the need to talk at the same time as my teacher? Why did I not believe that my teacher was entitled to respect? How would I want someone to behave while I was talking? What would I do the next time I felt the urge to talk to my friends during a lesson? I have given you these same assignments. I gave them to you not because I thought they would curb your behavior, they certainly did not curb mine, but because they were the earliest acts of interrogation, of drawing myself into consciousness. Your grandmother was not teaching me how to behave in class. She was teaching me how to ruthlessly interrogate the subject that elicited the most sympathy and rationalizing, myself. So here we see writing and questioning as absolute, ne absolutely necessary ingredients into the creation of a conscious self, uh, of, of an aware self. And that's how you take ownership, is by writing, is by thinking pointedly and expressively. So that's how you take ownership of consciousness. Finally, talk about taking ownership of self and identity. The only quote I have for that is on page 119, from the refugees at least. That's, I've already talked about it. Um, the, the taking ownership of the self. Uh, I, I had said that I was going to talk about it later, but I wasn't sure if I'd forget, but here it is. My name is Sa, she said, I am your wife. She, she denies being someone that she is not, and she proclaims an identity that is her own. Later, she has to subdue that identity as an act of love. But it's that proclamation that is important. It's that taking ownership of who you want yourself to be that is important. We move on to Coates, page 122. For the first time, I knew not only that I, was, that I really was alive, that I really was studying and observing, but that I had long been alive. Even back in Baltimore, I had always been alive. I was always translating. So by translating, he means taking in something and putting something out that is the same but different. We think of translating as language, but what he is doing is taking in the world, understanding it, and then writing it. Studying and observing the struggle that he talks about is reading as much as he can and then responding to those readings and engaging them. In that translation, he is taking ownership of those things. By naming them, by declaring them, he is saying that these are his and not his alone, but that they are his. And that is important. To, to proclaim something yours is important. And in that translation, he's able to claim an identity in what he understands. We'll go back to page 41 and 42. So in 41 and 42, it's a very long list that Coates gives, but it's a long list for a reason. It's the, I don't know what word I want to use. It's, it's the catalog, it's the canon of black culture that he discovers when he, go, when he attends Howard University. And he uses all these examples that he uh, encountered and engaged with when he was there. He refers to Howard University as the Mecca um, because he learned so much of 
who he is and what his life is for as he studied that canon. And what, what this represents is the answer to the generational dispossession that I talked about before. The cultural theft and plunder at the hands of white America in history, the response has been the creation of a new culture uh, and a new experience that is for the plundered. They could not, they can't exist in a world without identity, without self, without this idea of who they are amid this world that is not theirs. So they create something that is theirs. And it's not mine. I have my own, and I've enjoyed my own. So they have to be able to enjoy theirs. So it's an owned history. And in that history, they're able to find an identity and a self. Um, Coates, especially, because this is his book, he talks about how he is able to, he's able to create a self in that space. Let's see, can I find a sentence that says it? Ah, there isn't one, there isn't a one-liner that I noticed. I don't want to read the whole page to you, but that's important. <laughs> to encounter a shared, possessed history in a world of dispossession matters. That's a, that's a, that's a big moment in, in between the world and me. So we'll go on to page 48. And this is talking about drawing himself into consciousness, the, str the struggle and all that. The classroom was a jail uh, of other people's interests. The library was open, unending, free. Slowly, I was discovering myself. He, be he was able to take ownership of who he is in the safety of the freedom of the library. And the last one for self and identity is on page 149, right at the end of the book. And this, he's talking about the culture that he discovered at Howard University and that he has been participating in since that discovery and the difference between dispossession and possession, the difference between theft and recreation. Uh, they made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. Here at the Mecca, Howard University, under pain of selection, we have made a home as do black people on summer blocks marked with needles, vials, and hopscotch squares. As do black people dancing it out at rent parties. As do black people at their family reunions where we are regarded like the survivors of a catastrophe. As do black people toasting their cognac in German beers, passing their blunts and debating MCs. As do all of us who have voyaged through death to life upon these shores. In, in that struggle of self-creation there is triumph because among each other and i'm excluding myself on purpose among each other they have found something beautiful to stand on that is their own in a world that tries to take it from them i think that's a very important thing to understand if you're a white person reading this you may not actively try to take anything from any black person, which is good for you. But you have to understand that your environment that you enjoy does. And your actions may not directly take anything from anybody. But you have to make sure that you are not 
participating in the institutions and the systems that have taken and will continue to take until we all tumble out of the dream, as Coates says. Um, I, write, I wrote a little note here talking about the struggle, which is the fight to awaken us, the dreamers, from the dream to get them, us, to recognize and respect a black person's ownership of body, consciousness, and identity, and to not want to possess it, to recognize its independence of us. That brings me to the whole point of both of these books, in my opinion. Coates, it's called Between the World and Me. The epigraph uh, is an excerpt from a poem that talks about how the sooty details of a beautiful landscape came up between the world and the speaker of the poet he was taken aback because what normally is in the backdrop the ugly things that we can look past when we look at a beautiful clearing in a forest they suddenly came up and stared him in the face and they stood between the world and him i think that the that epigraph is very specific and has a a, a very pointed purpose as does the title and as does the repetition of the phrase between the world and me which appears on page 28, page 68, and page 115. They emphasize that lots of white people are able to overlook things that we should not, and both books intend to put themselves between the world and you, the reader. Page 136 of the Refugees had that parallel. Let me find it, read it to you. Because Carver, the character, very deliberately overlooks the horrors that he had wrought, that he participated in wreaking on the Vietnamese people. The flat fields behind the homes were mostly devoid of trees and shade. Some of the plots going rice and others devoted to crops Carver did not recognize, their color the dull, muted green of an algae bloom. The countryside nowhere near as lush and verdant as the Thai landscape visible from Carver's cockpit window as his B-52 ascended over the waters of... Um, Sorry, I can't pronounce those words. Destined for the enemy cities of the north or the plain of jars. There was a reason he loved flying. Almost everything looked more beautiful from a distance. The earth becoming ever more perfect as one ascended and came closer to seeing the world from God's eyes. Man's hovels and palaces disappearing. The peaks and valleys of geography fading to become strokes of a paintbrush on a divine sphere. But seen up close from this height, the countryside was so poor that the poverty was neither picturesque nor pastoral. Tin roof shacks with dirt floors, a man pulling up the leg of his shorts to urinate on a wall, laborers wearing slippers as they pushed wheelbarrows full of bricks. When Carver rolled down his window, he discovered that the smell of the countryside was just as unpleasant. They are thick with blasts of soot from passing trucks, the rot of buffalo dung, the fermentation of the local cuisine that he found briny and nauseating. All of the sights, sounds, and smells depressed Carver. And I love... That this quote has soot in it it makes my parallel even more juicy it's so easy for us to fly from god's eyes and it's so perfect that coates paints god in, in as the divine giver of the white american dream we it's so easy for us to live in that space of self-righteousness and detachment but we have to be willing to go down and look closely at the world that we have created and the world that we are surrounded by. And we have to be able to look at it and examine it and understand our place in it 
and the results of the actions that we perform in it. That is the point of reading anything, is to examine more closely the life that we live. I think that reading Between the World and Me and reading The Refugees and talking about it with people is the best way to reveal those sooty details, as uh, the poet Richard Wright wrote. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's all I have to say. Um, this is by far the longest podcast that I've done, but it's spanning two very important and very complex books. I hope I didn't oversi- uh, oversimplify anything, especially uh, about the content of the books themselves. It's hard to, to cover, you know, two 200-page books, but I, I tried my best. I also recognize that because of the nature of this medium, that I may have inadvertently uh, made generalizations, and I apologize for those generalizations. I want to examine everything fairly. And so if I painted something with too broad of a brush, call me out on that. As always, with every episode, if something about it intrigues you, pisses you off, confuses you, write me, dishespod at gmail.com. Um, I love to talk about, I love to talk to other people which is the irony of this podcast. makes me uncomfortable to talk by myself. I'm much better in conversation. So uh, if you want to engage with me at all on anything that I've said on this episode or any previous episode, again, that email is dishespod at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, have an excellent day.